Greetings and welcome to episode 6 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs, and our topic for today is Moltze and the Invention of Logic. Moltze is the most important of the ancient Huaxia philosophers that you've almost certainly never heard about before. Okay, Moltze, his dates are about 450 to 400, all right, a little more roundabout than we have with Confucius, um, but, you know, it gives you a general sense. We're talking, you know, this is, this is the, the first or second generation after Confucius dies, uh, around 480 or so. Okay, this is, uh, Moltze is going to be, you should think about Moltze as one of the first major reactions to Confucian ideas. And I title this The Invention of Logic because Moltze is going to do many groundbreaking things that uh, I don't believe he gets credit for enough in the historical record. Um, I don't really enjoy reading Moltze, and it's not something that I can enthusiastically recommend. Oh yeah, go off if you enjoy this episode and you find Moltze interesting, go read his stuff. Um, it's not all that fun to read. It's very repetitive and dry, um, but you know it's a product of its time and place. I do enjoy teaching Moltze, however. Uh, because he's doing some things that are very exciting. What is one of the most important things that he's doing? He presents the first internally coherent and consistive, uh, sorry, consistent narrative. Okay, there is the voice of only one author. We know this is Moltz's voice throughout. And each chapter, each you know section of the text that is attributed to his name, um, it makes sense from start to finish. The pieces build upon one another in logical storytelling fashion. We have not seen this yet, you know, compared to the sparse and cryptic Analects, which has no narrative continuity or even a single voice. Some scholars, many scholars think that some of the later books of the Analects are definitely, uh, you know, the voice is so radically different than the voice early on. Uh, there's multiple authors involved. Um, that's not the case with the Moltze, okay, whereas Confucius, the Analects, feels at times like a grab bag of loosely organized fortune cookie ambiguous wisdom. Uh, the Moltze is much more focused and coherent, and it tells a logical story, okay? Um, and I say that Moltze represents the invention of logic because this is the first time we're seeing the use of the logic of debate, right? Using logic to prove a moral point through examples and a continuous narrative. This makes Moltze the first recorded logician in East Asian history. Now, I'm not saying he's the first logician. He's the first recorded logician, that we have actual records of this, and his logical writings survive. And I'm not trying to also make the point that no one's using logic in their daily lives. Everyone's using logic in their daily lives because everyone makes arguments and fights and wants to pursue their own agendas, and you got to try and persuade people of your agendas. Moltze is simply the first to make it a literary device that helps prove his philosophical teachings. Okay? Remember, the Joe Mandate of Heaven, one of the first narratives of how things came to be, it still relies on an assumption that the status of who deserves the mandate of heaven is self-evident. There's no logic in the mandate of heaven. I won on the battlefield, therefore I, I rule. I deserve to rule. Now you can tear that apart if you have any sense of your own logic. And we do tear it apart. 
And they say how self-serving that is. Moltzes, there's still going to be self-serving arguments. But Moltzes is going to be the first that we have a record of who actually tries to um, use logic to prove a literary point that is internally consistent throughout the duration of his analysis. Why the need for logical debate? Why is this arising during the life of Moltze? Well, we've, we're, we're in the warring states period now. Okay, Moltze is living in an era in which there's not just a couple hundred states that all aspire to emulate the Joe, which is now a weak state, but they're all fighting each other on the battlefield. There's an arms race going on. Battle is getting increasingly horrific with larger and larger numbers of people. There's a lot of warfare and misery, a, 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 a desire to believe in a past golden age that we can return to. And many people are thinking about how do we end the misery? How do we get back to the imagined peace and harmony of the golden age of long ago? And Moltze is one of the first, well, he's the first that we have a record of, who says, here's a logical prescription for how we can do that. Right, the Confucians are not the first to offer that logical prescription. The Mohis are, which is the word in English that we use when we refer to the followers of Moltze. And Moltze was very popular in his day. And for about a century afterwards, he's not popular now, but he was very popular in his own day and age. If he was able to wake from the grave several hundred years later, he'd be shocked at how far his influence had fallen. Because when he died, he was king of the world in an ideological sense. Mencius, another generation or two later, would lament that, quote, the words of Moltze are on everyone's lips. Now, what Moltze is also going to do in addition to using logic to prove his points. He's also going to be one of the first, one of the first sure, who is going to introduce the rhetorical device of saying that political legitimacy of those who are in power rests in the people. Okay, Confucius talked a little bit you know, more about how to be civilized, the individual gentleman, how gentlemen should interact with one another, filial piety, the importance of ritual, None of that's going to go away. All the sure are going to talk about that and expand upon that stuff and reinterpret it. But there's definitely going to be a shift in emphasis that begins with Moltze, in which the right to rule will be premised on benevolent treatment of the masses. And that is new. And Moltze will put far more emphasis on the people, the illiterate masses of your empire, your subjects, than anyone before him, any writings before him have ever done before. Okay, that's going to be one of the, you know, the two major new innovations that Moltze introduces. Logic and an emphasis on your treatment of the people as the basis of political legitimacy. He'll still have blind faith in the, in the so-called ancient sage kings and the golden age of antiquity. He'll still cite the odes and other classics constantly like all the other sure will do. And he still will believe that character, ability, and behavior should trump mere birthright, which most of the sure also believe in. But he's going to stand out and be unique in having very specific prescriptions based on logic that will probably in the long term hurt his legacy because it's going to be easy to say, I disagree with what Moltze says. I don't want to do that. And it sort of taints his whole, his whole political program. Okay, Moltze also stands out among all the other sure philosophers in having actually walked his talk. Moltze vowed to end the sin of what he called the sin of offensive warfare. And the Mohists, the follower of Moltze, were well known for their willingness 
to study siege warfare skills and offer their services to weak states in hopes that they could raise the cost of a siege for the stronger invading state so high that the battle would never take place at all. And they would offer these free defensive services to weaker states in hopes of forestalling a large battle. Okay. It was very much against warfare. Not all the sure would say they were against warfare. And they would all include little loopholes that would allow for the waging of what they would refer to as justified war, but they wouldn't call it war. Let's get into Moltz's actually specific, his specific ideological prescriptions. The most famous phrase that is associated with Moltze is universal love. It's translated as universal love. That's sort of a hippie-ish thing that makes me think too much of the 1960s, so sometimes you can also translate this as impartial caring. The present-day Chinese pronunciation of the terms um, are, is jian uh, ai. Okay, jian ai. Impartial caring. Let's use that. I don't like universal love. Um, what is impartial caring? Well, it's the opposite of partial caring. Partiality. Treating some people better than others for a variety of reasons. You might treat your own kids better than your neighbor's kids because they're your own kids. Makes sense, right? Malta says no. He says, my prescription for how we achieve a harmonious society and end this warfare and hostility among all these states is to treat others the same as you would treat your own family. That's impartial caring. If we did this at every level, and remember, they're thinking in terms of this pyramid scheme of society. Confucius said filial piety is the most important prescription for how we can achieve a harmonious state. And that's great when your state is, lives in a unipolar world and all you're thinking about is one pyramid scheme. When you're living in a multipolar world in which 100 states are all trying to kill each other, Confucianism doesn't work as well, which is one reason why Confucianism will be adopted as the official state ideology when you get back to a unipolar world with the advent, with the rise of the Han Dynasty. In a multipolar world, Moltze sounds like a good idea. He says, if we use that same pyramid scheme and we all practice impartial caring, and you treat your neighbors, your neighbors' kids as you would treat your own kids, and we do this at every single household, at every single village, all the way up to our king, and the king treats other kings, well, let's see, the, the, the king treats other um, ministers as he would treat his own ministers. The ministers treat other subjects of neighboring empire uh, states the way they treat their own subjects. You know, don't go to war. Then no one will ever attack anyone else. No ruler would ever let his people starve or the people of a neighboring state starve. And Moltze asks, would you rather entrust the care of your family while you're away from your family to a partial man or an impartial man? You would entrust it to the care of an impartial man who would treat your family the way he treats his own family. Now, Confucius's filial piety, which is what Moltz is railing against here, filial piety emphasizes your primary loyalty to your own family. If each family practices filial piety, then the realm will be at peace. And Moltz says no. This doesn't work in a world in which there's so many of us in different states. Now, is universal love compatible 
with a pyramid-like social hierarchy? Absolutely. He's saying, care for everyone the same as your own family, and the world will be at peace. Oh my God, is this socialism? No. Just like socialist states in the 20th century, hierarchy and populism are totally compatible, distressingly so. (laughs) He's not advocating the erasure of class distinctions and making everyone equal. Oh, no, 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 no. He's advocating a new criteria for the promotion of worthy men into positions of wealth and power. Those who practice impartial caring, universal love the most, should be placed into positions of authority in each state. And if that happens, then at every level of each state, every level of the pyramid, the people who have a power and authority will practice impartial caring to their own subjects and to the subjects of neighboring states. And the world will be at peace because no one's going to go to war against someone that you regard as just as important as your own family or your own state. Just like in socialist societies in the 20th century. Promotion into powerful positions of the bureaucracy was, in theory, premised upon your embodiment of populist socialist principles, how well you looked out for the welfare of the people. Now, in practice, obviously, it was perverted, but that was the ideal in theory, and Moltz's ideal in theory is exactly the same. How does Moltz propose enforcing the provisions of impartial caring? I love this one. Punish people who don't practice it. <laughs> Rewards and punishments. Okay, if you people who don't carry out the provisions of universal love should be punished for their lack of universal love. Right? Not very creative. All right? Not a whole lot of imagination with Moltz and how he's going to enforce this. It almost seems to go against the whole idea of what he's, the whole spirit of what he's advocating. How does he know that impartial caring can be implemented? Well, here's a rhetorical tactic that we're going to see time and time again. The four sages of antiquity practiced it, he says. That's the golden age. Discourse of the good old days. Here it is in spades. All right, and how does he know that the ancients once practiced impartial caring? Where does he get this specialized knowledge? Well, he's educated. And like all the sure, he has special access to written records and history. And he says, quote, I did not live at the same time as the ancients did, nor have I in person heard their voices or seen their faces. Yet I know it because of what is written on the bamboo and silk that has been handed down to posterity, what is engraved on metal and stone, and what is inscribed on bowls and basins. That's all the written record of his day. He's educated and he read it. That's what our extant classics say about the world that used to exist. I see these examples The book of documents says so, and therefore this is how the golden age in the past, the good old days, was held together, and we've lost the way. He also quotes the odes over and over again to back up his point. I've always found these random citations of various odes to support whatever point you're trying to make, your logical argument, I've always found them very bizarre, and oftentimes I look and they say, this ode supports my point, and I'm like, really? I don't see that. Maybe I'm just not getting it. I'm not. I'm not erudite enough. Um, here's some examples of what he does, and all the all the sure are going to do this. They're going to bring out examples from the odes or the book of documents and say, "Okay, here's my argument, and here's an example that proves it." Uh, Moltz's assertion that the ancient kings practiced impartial caring. He quotes the following ode: 
Broad, broad is the way of the king, neither partial nor partisan. Fair, fair is the way of the king, neither partisan nor partial. It is straight like an arrow, smooth like a whetstone. A superior man treads it, small man looks upon it. Well, there you go. The odes say so. The odes are describing some ancient king who was neither partial nor partisan. He was fair, fair. That was the way of the king. All right. Argument is done. Now, let's move on to another chapter in the Molze. That's you actually refer to what the text in his name as the Molze. Uh, against offensive warfare. Here is where we get your ex- his, his, his best demonstration of the power of logic. We didn't see logic so much in the impartial carrying. We saw sort of this invocation of the good old days in the text. Confucius is doing that too. Uh, against offensive warfare, here's where he's really going to bring his powers of logic to bear and uh, garner the reputation of being the first logician in East Asian history, who we have knowledge of. What he's going to do, what logic is all about, all right, the art of the logician, uh, the, the person who's arguing a point wants to draw you in to his camp, step by step, before you realize it, through small, unobjectionable concessions to obvious points that no one in their right mind would disagree with. And as you agree to each one of these incremental points, he's drawing you into a larger point. And by the time you get to point number 10, you've already said, yes, I agree with you to points one through nine, and he's got you. And he says, if you agreed with points one through nine, then this is the inescapable, logical conclusion to the argument. And you got nowhere to go. He's got you in his trap. All right. So now he wants to argue against the virtues of offensive warfare and say no one should ever engage in offensive warfare. So here's how he does it. He says the following. Everyone agrees that injury on a small scale, such as homicide, doing injury to another human being, is bad. So why is injury on a large scale, i.e. war, celebrated? And here he's going to bring out his infamous example of logic, of black versus white, he says. The color is black versus white. He says, if you call a little bit of black, black, everyone agrees with you. Okay, there's a little spot of black there. I agree with you that that is a spot of black. But then you have a lot of black. The whole wall is covered in black paint. You agreed that a small little smidge, a small little dot of black was black. But now there's a ton of black on the wall. If you call that white, aren't you insane? You agreed that the small version of black was black. But now we have a lot of black and now you're calling it white? A little bit of bitter is bitter, but a lot of bitter is suddenly sweet? Same with war. Hit punching your neighbor in the face. That's bad. But taking 10,000 men, giving them spears, and telling them to go out to the field of battle and thrust their spear through the, through the chests of 10,000 other men, that's not bad. That's good. That's noble. That's heroic. You'd have to be insane to think that. So that's his logical argument against war. If you believe... That a little bit of black is black. And then you go to step two and you agree that a lot of black is also black. Then you must agree that offensive warfare is bad. Because 
the murder of a single person is evil. That's self-evident. And therefore, it stands to logic that the murder of hundreds of people, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people in war is also evil. And so there is no way to justify offensive war in that sense. There's a problem here, though. Mozart is a sure. He needs to get a job. He needs to be hired by the powers that be. He needs to gain employment by one of these kings. Having your own students is fine, and that might pay the bills, but that's not the path to gold and glory. You want to have the ear of a powerful king who you can advise. Well, all of these kings have to go to war. Anyone who's a pacifist and doesn't prepare for war is going to get swallowed up and their state will cease to exist. So, if you, if you hire Moltze as your advisor, can you ever go to war? If you can't, you're not going to hire Moltze and his whole philosophy, his whole program is self-defeating from the point of view of employment. Because remember, these aren't just you know, unattached philosophers floating about in the ancient world. They're a product of their time and place and they need to make a living. Yes, philosophers need to eat. They do all the same things that regular human beings do. It's easy to forget that sometimes when we study them in isolation from history. So how are you going to go to war if Malta is your advisor? He's clearly against offensive warfare. He goes back to the ancients. And he says, well, we see examples of the ancients going to war. They didn't go to war very often, but they went to war. But when they went to war... It was punishment sanctioned by heaven. What? Punishment sanctioned by heaven? Yeah. He says their war wasn't aggressive warfare. It wasn't offensive warfare. When they went to war, it was justified by the signs of heaven. Heaven made evident signs in the stars, in the weather, whatever, natural phenomenon that the sure interpreted for the king. And they said, you need to punish an immoral king or ruler of a neighboring state. And I'm, here I am giving you the signs. Well, who interprets the signs of heaven? The sure, Moltze does. Okay? So Moltze is still going to tell you, you can go to war sometimes. But it's not war. It's punishment justified punishment of an immoral person. Well, isn't this nice? This is just a bunch of linguistic hula hoops, isn't it? Okay, I told you, even uh, everyone is going to have a self-serving philosophy. And here is where we've got Moltze in his own trap. Moltze, to put it simply, sanctions war when you go to war and call it something else. And he's going to help you do that. If you hire him, he will help you put a benevolent face on your war. You know, I've seen enough of these philosophers and enough of political ideologies that are put forth and explanations about why our troops are going out to battle. Um, over, you, you, you see enough of these examples and you start to realize that if you listen to the people who actually instigate war, the rulers and their advisors and the military, um, then no one has ever waged an unjustified offensive aggressive warfare in the history of the world. Never happened. We always live in a peaceful world in which everyone does injury to other people and other large groups of people in battle in justified self-defense. 
think of this. You have our examples in our own day and age. We didn't go into Iraq. It's not an, an, an aggressive offensive war that was immoral. It was a preemptive defensive measure for highfalutin purposes of freeing the world of a mad dictator and his weapons of mass destruction. People have been doing this, making up these justifications for aggressive war since the dawn of time. And Molza has a loophole. All the sure will have a loophole in their own unique way, very specifically unique ways in which they will justify going to war. But they'll help you convince everyone else in the world that it's not war. It's war by another name. It's punishment. Finally, let's get Moltz's ideas on Confucians. That's what he's responding to. The Confucians fired the first salvo. And he needs to convince people that the Confucians are full of shit. Then you should listen to Moltz. It's not filial piety. That shouldn't be the organizational building block of society. It should be universal love, impartial caring. That's a direct competitor to the idea of filial piety. There's a lot of diversity in these ideologies in the early days. You never heard of Moltze, but you've, you know, so you've never heard of impartial caring. You've heard a lot about Confucius and filial piety because we know who wins. In other words, we know who is most useful to the people who will uh, wield wealth and power over the long term. Confucius is seen as most useful. Well, Moltze has an entire chapter called Against Confucians. And we get a very different picture of, the, of Confucian practice, Confucian livelihood here. This is criticism of the Confucians as a pragmatic daily livelihood. Moltze very much dislikes the Confucian vision for the social hierarchy. What does he call it? He says it's fatalistic. Remember we talked about in the previous episode how there's, there's both strains in Confucianism. You can find evidence that he supports a fatalistic interpretation of your uh, place in society, and you can also find support for the proposition that he's all about transformation and being able to transform yourself into something better than what you are. Moltze fixates on the first one, and he says, Confucians believe in fate. They say you can't change your station in life. You must accept your social role. That's why they talked about the rectification of names. Be what you are and do it as well as you can. Fulfill your social role. And he says, if everyone buys into this, there's no incentive to work hard. That transformation crap that you were talking about, clearly that's just for the educated elite. That's a small sliver of society. The farmer peasant can't transform himself because you said transformation can only occur through education and mastery of the rights. How is Farmer Wong going to master the rights and read the classics? He can't. So he's faded into his position at the bottom of the social hierarchy. But my, my program, my program says that all he has to do is practice universal love, treat other people the same as he would treat his own family members, and he can go up in society. He can be someone who's important and wealthy and has influence in the world. He also says, and I've alluded to this several times already, so this won't come as a surprise, Moltz also criticizes the Confucians as lazy and corrupt. He says they're the ambulance chasers of the ancient world. He says, quote, they are thrilled when they hear of a death in a rich family. This is our chance for clothing and food, the Confucians say. He says they, no they leverage their knowledge and mastery of the ancient rites, rituals, to claim a monopoly over all social events in our lives. 
and they charge an arm and a leg for their services. But this is just a smokescreen for laziness and greed. They can't go out and earn an honest living, so they dupe poor, hardworking people into thinking that the Confucians are essential for sending Grandma to the other world after she dies, or she's going to come back and haunt you in your sleep. He also criticizes the showy materialness of Confucian ritual. He says, hey, it's not enough that they say you need to hire a Confucian ritual expert to preside over your funeral or your marriage or whatever, or your capping ceremony when a boy becomes a man. Not only that, they also say you need all these special, you know, um, um, gadgets and baubles and supplementary items and objects that are expensive. And they'll help be the middleman as well to sell these things to you and take their own cut of the profit. So he really doesn't like what the Confucians are doing. He also is going to have a more hypocritical criticism of them in which he says the Confucians talk too much about the ancient days. And this is bizarre. This is an area where you got to say, well, let's say you're full of shit. Come on. He says they have a pedantic fixation on archaic forms and material products. He says Confucius, with his imposing appearance and attention to elaborate detail, misleads the age. With his music and dancing, he attracts followers. With his multitude of ritual prescriptions to be observed in ascending and descending stairs, he propounds his ceremonies. With his emphasis upon the rules for hastening and scurrying about court, he impresses the multitude. One could live a couple of lifetimes and still not master all the learning of the Confucians. In all those years, one could not succeed in carrying out all their rites, while the largest fortune would not be sufficient to cover the expenses of their music. And what do they invoke to justify all of this? He says they invoke antiquity. And Moltzes says, in this particular case, he says you need to emulate the example of the ancients in the broad outlines, not the details. The Confucians will say these are the details of what the ancients said. He's just splitting hairs here. We've seen that he invokes the ancients as well, in the good old days as well. The sure are tricky, and they're often hypocritical, and they often contradict, contradict themselves. But, beginning with Moltze, at least we can start to try and pin them down, analyzing their logic rationally, and seeing where they trip up. You can't really do this with the Analects and Confucius, or with the Book of Documents and a lot of these ancient Confucian classics because they aren't logical narrative stories or arguments. So pointing out the inconsistencies in them is pointless. But when with Moltze, you begin to have people um, provide the pretense of logical arguments, rational debate. And they are easier for us to engage with and say, you know what, he makes internal consistent sense here or he doesn't make sense here, or he's being hypocritical here. I want a little more firm ground with men like Moltze. Now, our next topic, before we get into the people who react against Moltze, we're going to eventually get into Mencius and Shunze, who are going to revive the Confucian legacy and give, it, give the Analects some, some, some flesh on the bones of the Analects. But before we get to them, we need to turn to one other very important school of thought, the Taoists. Okay, the Taoists. The Taoists are so different in every way. Well, not every way. In many ways from 
the logicians that begin with Mose. They defy your attempts to pick apart their logic. And that's intentional. I mean, get ready for extreme relativism, theories of relativity, 2,500 years before Einstein. An insistence on the absurdity of the world we live in. The rest of the sure, Moltze, Confucius, Mencius, Shunze, Han Feidze, they're horribly serious people. They take themselves very seriously. Everything is a matter of life and death and the fate of the world. The Taoists are going to laugh in the face in that. They're going to say, this world is absurd. And it will drive you crazy taking it seriously. We're going to tell you how to come to peace with this crazy world. Stop taking yourself so seriously because we certainly don't. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode on Taoism, Zhuangzi, and the way. (laughs) 